HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. The following program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery. Kane Vineyard and Winery supports Heritage Radio and the growing movement to change how Americans eat and how we think about our planet. For more information, visit www.kane5.com. Welcome to Let's Get Real on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Erica Wides, your host. And tonight, we're kind of breaking free of the usual Let's Get Real show format. Um, I have a very special guest on the show tonight. I have legendary real food warrior, Marion Nessel, joining me on the phone. And um, just in case you don't already know who she is, and you should... Uh, Mary Nessel is the Paulette Goddard Professor in the Department of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health, and Professor of Sociology at New York University. She was a Senior Nutrition Policy Advisor in the Department of Health and Human Services and Managing Editor of the 1988 Surgeon General's Report on Nutrition and Health. She's been a member of the FDA Food Advisory Committee and Science Board, the USDA DHHS Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee, and the American Cancer Society committees that issue dietary guidelines for cancer prevention. As if that's not enough, she's also the author of Food Politics, How the Food Industry Influences Nutrition and Health, Safe Food, The Politics of Food Safety, What to Eat, and most recently, Pet Food Politics, The Chihuahua in the Coal Mine, and Feed Your Pet Right, co-authored with Malden Nesheim, which also came out in 2010. She writes a monthly Food Matters column for the San Francisco Chronicle and blogs most days at foodpolitics.com and at the Atlantic Food Channel. She also tweets at Marion Nessel. And I would have to say that Marion Nessel was on to foodiness while most of us were still drinking Crystal Light and eating snack wells. 
So just a little bit of paying respects and homage here to Marion before we introduce her. Um, I teach at ICE, the Institute of Culinary Education, and Marion came and did a talk to, uh, for the faculty about six or seven years ago and brought in a toy McDonald's set. I think that's what it was. We'll check when we come on with her. But it was like a toy of like McDonald's food and a uniform and like maybe a little cash register or something. And she also brought some other packages from her collection of packaged foods and spoke about the relationship between the USDA and the food industry and the industrialization of our food. And that was what really turned up the volume for me on a subject that I was already feeling very strongly about. And so it was kind of that presentation along with reading other people like John Robbins and Michael Pollan, of course, that kind of set me down this road and on this mission to educate people about what I call foodiness. So with that, welcome to the show, Marion Nessel. Oh, glad to be here. Thank you so much for joining us at this very busy time of year, but it's great to have you. So um, do you remember that talk you gave at ICE? It was a long time ago. I don't, but oh, okay. I just packed that McDonald's toy set. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> moving offices, and so I'm divesting a lot of things oh, and packing okay. up things. And I thought, mm, I'm not ready to divest that quite yet. No, that's definitely a cultural relic that you need to hold on to. One of the scarier toys, I think, out there. Um, Indeed. Yeah. So Let's Get Real, the show, is about helping people distinguish between, you know, what I call real food, you know, which we know is things that originally walked or swam or grew in the ground or flew, you know, actual food, and what I call foodiness, which is the manufactured doppelgangers of food, things like veggie puffs and soy chips and... What Michael Pollan calls food-like objects. Exactly. I think he says food-like edible substances, things like that. Right. And But what I think really identifies foodiness in my mind is the the manufactured food-like objects that are kind of pretending to be the healthier, greener, organic versions of that. So, you know, not an apple, but not Apple Jacks, sort of the thing in between, like the organic apple Pop-Tart, you know, where they sort of, it's not the real food and it's not the horribly p- poor quality junk food, but it's the kind of one in between that kind of sneaks in. So that's what I call foodiness. So why do you think that it's become so hard for people to really tell the difference between real food and foodiness. No, because the food industry wants people to buy food, and they know perfectly well that if they put an organic label on it, people are going to think it's healthy, and that it doesn't have any calories. Right. It's that it's the health halo, the greenwashing of food that it sort of automatically makes people think it's it's a superior product. Yeah, and yeah. you know everybody falls for it, even if you're you know unless you go into a supermarket with your talons out. Right. <laughs> You know, you're just walking up and down the aisle and you think, oh, it's organic. That makes it okay. Right, right. And I think and it's it's really devious, I think, and really sneaky. It's this co-opting, of course, of the organic sustainable movement that people have worked for so hard now to, you know, to bring about and to get to this point. And I feel like, you know, now they're sort of trying to steal it away from us. Um, and, you know, so I think foodiness is, is like sort of that term that, not only encompasses all of that, of course, but all the junk out there, too. So my kind of mission here is um, to kind of bring this information and this awareness, you know, to everybody. I mean, we, we're certainly, you know, we live in New York and we're kind of in the like food elite world here. 
But, you know, what about the supermarket mom? You know, the person sort of in middle America who doesn't really necessarily have a farmer's market on every corner or doesn't have access to a store like Whole Foods or something like that. How do you think we're going to be able to sort of get this idea or this sort of uh, new way of thinking across to those people? Well, it's uh, the those people part of it is the part that kind of strikes me. It's not up to us to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I love about the food movement is it's bottom up. Mm. People deciding for themselves what they want and what they are going to eat for themselves. And all you can do if you want to help America eat better is to put the word out to mm-hmm. make food more accessible right. and let people figure it out for themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't feel comfortable going into communities and telling people what they should be eating. No, All I, I certainly... All I can do is say what I think is healthy to eat. Right. Cite the evidence for it. Sure. And hope people figure it out for themselves. Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, telling anybody to do anything always backfires because people will, you know, always do quite the opposite. I mean, we both teach, so we know what that's like. But I also feel like um, uh, it's almost like a Stockholm Syndrome kind of thing where people are identifying with the food manufacturers more than they are with real food or people have come to trust the manufactured product more than they actually trust the real food. Do you well, get- why wouldn't they when you consider the amount of money that goes into sure. convincing people that that's what people should be eating? Right. The marketing dollars are so incredibly huge. Right. I remember that was one of the statistics that you uh, brought up when you gave that talk at ICE was the difference between the advertising budget, you know, for I forgot who it was, you know, General Foods versus, you know, like the carrot producers of America or something like that. Fifty million dollars just on television advertising for Pop-Tarts last year. Wow. Just Pop-Tarts. That's unbelievable. And actually, there's this new Pop-Tarts commercial that's this really incredibly beautiful animated little film that I even find myself watching and being seduced (laughs) and pulled into. And, you know, I can't do that. Um, so you and I actually both uh, spoke last month down at um, at Occupy Big Food, which was a little, you know, an event we held down at um, Occupy Wall Street. And in your speech, you called the real food movement a social movement. So can you explain a little bit about what you meant by that? Sure. Um, I'm a sort of honorary sociologist at NYU, so I get to do these things. And when I was appointed to the sociology department, I thought, well, gee, I ought to teach a sociology course. So I taught a course in food sociology on social movements. I had taken a course in social movements when I was in college, uh, and I remembered it pretty well. A, a social movement is, um, is, acti- is sort of united activity around a particular issue, uh, almost invariably uh, done by large groups of people who are interested in the same kinds of things. And the, the classic examples are the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. the environmental movement, and the women's movement. I mean, these are the ones that we've mostly related to. Um, but I think the food movement has a great deal in common with these in that there are very clear goals, there's social activity around it, uh, there's advocacy around it, and lots and lots of people are involved in it in many, many different ways. What's different about the food movement is that it has many different goals. The locavore movement, the slow food movement, um, the animal welfare movement, I mean, you name it. Every aspect of the food supply has people who are advocating for it in one way or another, but all of them are aimed 
at having a food system that's healthier for people on the planet. I think that makes it a social movement, although I taught it with a legitimate sociologist, and he kept reminding me and the class that you can't really tell whether it's a social movement until something happens, mm. or until it's over, and then you can look back and say, oh, yeah, that was a social movement. Uh-huh, so you can look, sort of like look back. Me. Sorry, I, I interrupted you, and I couldn't hear what you said. What was the last thing you said? It feels like one to me. It feels like one to me, too. I mean, and, you know, in, in, in that sort of tiny little moment we had down at Occupy Big Food, I got a sense of that. Um, you know, and part of what I want to do on this show is what I call moving the dial, you know, where you, people really are starting to kind of shift in their thinking, and, and maybe it is sort of a galvanizing movement. But, I mean, I feel like we're sort of banging up against this big food behemoth all of the time and 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 i mean it frustrates me because i sit here and do this show every week and you know sort of try to get this message out but um you know that i'm getting swallowed by the pop tart monster all the time but i think you're right that it is from the ground up and people just have to make their own decisions um and i mean i definitely see the real food movement expanding you know within within the kind of real food world i just feel like like um we just face, like I just said, we just face such sort of intense competition and conflict. And it's, it's you know, not only a social movement, it's, such, it's a political movement, too. I mean, when Sarah Palin sort of stands up there with her cookies as a rallying cry and says, you know, I defend the right to bring cookies to my students. I mean, that's where, I, you know, what I was saying before about people identifying with the enemy, you know, that Stockholm syndrome kind of, uh, kind of thing. Um, so how do you think we can sort of galvanize the movement to incorporate them also or maybe it's not an us versus them thing it's just a grassroots thing. Uh, the us versus them business makes me really uncomfortable uh-huh. um so i i wonder if we can find another way sure but don't i, I mean do you, I, they're I, sort of taking that approach too i don't know anybody who's involved in the food movement who doesn't want it to be universal no absolutely you know, doesn't want healthy, delicious food to be available to everybody, whether they have money or not. Um, and lots and lots of people are working on trying to improve access to healthier food for everybody, not just people who have money. Right. Well, I mean, you know, I feel like that's what I'm trying to do on the show, too, is, is bring it to the supermarket, you know, as opposed to just the farmer's market or, you know, if you live in sort of an urban center. Um, but it seems to me that it's almost becoming sort of a culture war also. And well, we have a culture war because I people find that like culture wars, but that doesn't mean that people who are poor don't want to make, have healthy food for their kids. Mm-hmm. Just want it presented to them in a way that's easier. That's why I think it's so much more important to change the environment than it is to try to go in and tell people what to do. Mm-hmm make fruits and vegetables cheaper people sure. will buy them right make them available to people you yeah know, yeah it's that simple and you don't have to you don't have to do any preaching around it. right right it's the price well it's like here in new york now that we have uh, i can't remember what they're called they're those sort of little mobile carts that bring fresh produce into neighborhoods that are very underserved that are food deserts mm-hmm. yeah i mean are there statistics that you know of on that is it working are people buying I don't know. I haven't seen anything on it at all. I've been wondering about that myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do know that there are statistics on the use of uh, food stamps uh-huh. and WIC coupons uh, in farmers' markets if the pricing is set up so that 
uh, they get double benefit for it, and there are a lot of there are a lot of pilot studies and different kinds of programs that are doing that, and these have been quite successful, mm-hmm. particularly when they're accompanied by. Uh, some kind of cooking lesson for people teaching people what to do with these things. Sure. Well, you know, I think that's part of the problem, too, is we've all kind of grown up and come of age in a world where nobody is cooking that much anymore. I mean, you know, I learned from my mom, and I'm a professional chef, but I know that basic cooking skills are really not a part of people's everyday education. No one takes home ec anymore, things like that. So absolutely, I mean, you, you know, you can give people access to food, but if they don't know what to do with it, they're not necessarily going to use it. I mean, you know, I have a cousin who's a pretty well-known national newscaster. You know, he's affluent and he's, you know, certainly got the resources. But we got together because he wanted me to teach him how to cook and he really knew Nothing. Nothing. I mean, like, seriously, nothing about how to cook. And I even, I have students, you know, coming to culinary school who drop their $30,000 sign up and they don't know anything either and that's also what I find incredibly distressing is how far removed we've actually just come from the tactile experience of our food yeah I mean bring it back in schools that's why I think it's so important for people to get political about these things and advocate and why schools are such a great place for people to start oh sure I mean I took you know my mom taught me how to cook but I took home ec we had home ec and you know the 70s I don't even know if they still teach that um, they anymore. don't. They don't at all. It was cut along with arts and music and all of that. I mean, what I actually think people should be learning is not just home ec, but like a life skills kind of class, you know, like this is how you do basic household functions, how you, you know, wash your laundry and how you can cook for yourself. Yes. You know, uh, we're going to take a very quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about food versus foodiness with Marion Nestle. So just hold on and we'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to Let's Get Real on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Erica Wides, your host. Remember that you can always listen to any Heritage Radio Network show on iTunes. They're all there for you, and they're all free. You can also uh, check out letsgetrealshow.com, which is the website for this show. You can follow me on Twitter at Let's Get Real, and you can also find me on Facebook. So we are talking tonight with Marion Nessel, and um, we're talking about the real food movement and... uh, teaching people how to cook and bringing people more back in touch with the process of acquiring and cooking and eating real food. So, uh, Marion, are you still there with us? I certainly am. Okay, great. So here's a question, um, you know, sort of getting back to this idea of foodiness and the manufactured doppelgangers and all these products that we now kind of accept as food but really are not, you know, they're what Michael Pollan calls edible food-like substances. Um if you showed up like a protein bar, you know, all these horrible sort of protein bar meal things that are on the market now. So something like a protein bar or a fruit gummy snack to a caveman, do you think they would eat it? Oh, that's a hype. I think they probably would. They would taste it and love the taste. Sure, because <laughs> sure, it was so sweet. 
Everybody likes it. Yeah, I suppose that's true. And I, you know, in prehistoric times, the objective was to seek out sweetness, wasn't it? So. It was what? Or salt. Or salt, right, or fat. I mean, they wouldn't really know what it was, but they would certainly eat it. But what about, you know, if you showed it to your grandmother or your great-grandmother, what do you think she would think of it? It depends on who the grandmother is. <laughs> you true. know, I mean, there are hypothetical questions that are very difficult to answer. It's true, yeah. I don't know, my, my great... People love these things. Yeah, I, suppose, I think because I find it also scary and repulsive. I always just think everyone does, but it's quite the opposite. I think people really love that stuff. We're we're kind of billions of the of dollars worth of these products a year. Somebody's eating them. I, oh, oh, I know. Plenty of people are, are are eating them. So, if we were to sort of give somebody, you know, this is a little bit what we were talking about earlier, but you know, very simple direction at the grocery store. You you know, you're going shopping. This is like what you wrote about in your book. You know, in what to eat. You go into your average supermarket and you want to guide them toward the real food and away from the foodiness. You know, can you give us a couple of your basic rules for that? My, when I wrote uh, What to Eat in 2006, it was really easy. I just said shop the periphery of the supermarket. That's where the real foods are. But supermarkets have changed. Um, and now supermarkets are putting more and more and more processed foods in and among the real foods. So that you go into the, if you go into a big supermarket that has a big produce section, you'll find a lot of processed foods on the shelves in and among there uh, because they pick up the fresh uh, real food aura in that way. Uh, Supermarkets were listening and they understood that people were catching on, that they should avoid the center aisles, so they moved the center aisles out. Yeah, it's so it's so insidious. It's so sneaky. I actually <laughs> attended the uh, the produce expo here in New York last month, and that was one of the biggest sort of things on display there. You know, the the uh, vendors were displaying was things like pre cut apple slices in packaging. You know, that had been treated with chemicals so they wouldn't brown, and and it was a lot of stuff like that. A lot of processed pre packaged kind of stuff. And actually, I two last week, two weeks ago on the show, I that's I did a whole show on that, on the simple kind of foods that we always sort of thought of things you'd cook yourself, but now we're finding pre-made and frozen. Things like pre-cooked scrambled eggs or pre-made pancakes. Or That's a mind-boggling thought. It's a, a mind-boggling. I mean, how hard is it to scramble an egg? <laughs> it is a pan. All you need is a pan and some heat. It, I mean, that's what really blows me away is that really basic stuff. But then also you're, what I'm finding really disturbing is things like, you know, there are these chain restaurants that serve terrible enough food. And now they're packaging their entrees and freezing them and selling them in the supermarket. So not only are you getting this, you know, thousand calorie processed restaurant chain food, but you can now take it home from the supermarket and cook it at home. Which is almost, it's like, you know, six degrees removed from the real thing. So I find that that really distressing. And one of the things I talk about here on the show a lot is the idea of, you know, that we're sort of falling down this rabbit hole, like in Alice in Wonderland. Remember Alice, you know, fell down the rabbit hole and she drank the thing that said drink me and ate that little thing that said eat me and it caused her to have all sorts of strange experiences. You're familiar with the story? I am. <laughs> Just checking. Um and so I feel like we've gone sort of so far down this foodiness rabbit hole that everywhere we turn now, there's sort of a foodiness answer to a foodiness caused problem. So, 
you know, there's a foodiness treatment for a foodiness illness. So, you know, you, oh, you don't need any vegetables. You don't need any real fruit or vegetables. You're constipated. Well, now you can eat yogurt with added fiber to it. (laughs) All you can do is laugh. Yeah, well, or cry, right? (laughs) But, you know, so... So if we ate this, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis's fiber-filled yogurt, we wouldn't have to eat any fiber in any other form because we're getting yogurt that has fiber in it, where yogurt never had fiber in it before a thousand years ago, you know, in Greece. And so it's like foodiness disguising itself as real food to get us away from foodiness. Now, that's how I feel about calcium added to orange juice. Yes, that's actually one of the examples that I love to use, is why do we have to put calcium in our orange juice? Why do things have to be enriched with stuff that doesn't belong in there? They can raise the price. Well, yeah, absolutely. And also sort of make people, it's like a value-added thing, right? You sort of feel like you're getting more bang for your buck that way. So where, you know, just try to sort of spin this in a slightly more positive direction where or maybe not do you see us our relationship our food scene in 50 years oh i don't have a crystal ball i really don't um i i see the food movement expanding getting bigger still very small relative to the industrial food system but making very very small incursions into it and it's the one part of the food system that's growing that's a very positive sign that's yeah actually that's true that segment of the market is is starting to grow you know do you think well you you don't necessarily want to speculate but are we heading toward like a soylent green situation where people don't know what their food is because they've never actually seen it or maybe well, I, are, we're a lot of that there. depends on what happens to the world's population, which we can't predict right now. But if the prediction is that we're going to have 9 billion people in 20 or 30 years or whatever it is, uh, food is going to become scarce and there are going to be a lot of problems with it. Right now we have a two-class food system. We have food for people who can afford it and are interested in these kinds of issues. And then we have mass food for everybody else. I don't think that that division is going to go away. I'm just hoping that the piece of it that I'm interested in will get bigger. Uh, the, the, the real food movement, the... the uh it seems to be, so yeah. I'm very optimistic about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I vacillate between optimism and pessimism, but, you know, when I look around me sort of within my world, I feel pretty good about it, and then I go into a large suburban supermarket, and I get kind of upset. Um, now, just to change the subject a little bit here, your latest book is about pets and pet food. Can you um, just give us kind of a quick idea about that? I mean, one of the things that I've always been sort of outraged by is that certain cuts of meat like blood and lungs and certain parts of animals which people have eaten for thousands of years are now not allowed to be sold for human consumption because the pet food industry wants it can you i don't think that that's the reason why there was no market for it uh and because there was no market Mm -hmm. for it Food companies had to find a use for it. And I actually think that pet food is a really good use for those products. Otherwise, we would, ha- we would be feeding pets human food. And one of the things we did in this book, Feed Your Pet Right, we calculated uh, how many, if on a calorie basis, how much food you would have to feed pets if they weren't eating pet food 
made from the byproducts of human food consumption, and it turned out to be another 32 million people in the United States alone. Wow, that, that's incredible. Pets eat, the cats and dogs alone eat the same number of calories, roughly, as 32 million people. Wow. That's a mind-boggling statistic. Pretty mind-boggling. That's incredible. Have, you know, we have 150 million cats and 150 million dogs. I don't remember the exact figure, but there's um, you know, a couple hundred, two or three hundred million uh-huh. cats in the United States, and they have to be fed. So where, what, I mean, I have no pets, so I don't know, you know, what's the sort of state of the pet food industry right now? Is it following the sort of same path? I mean, I do notice ads and things for, you know, organic and natural pet food and things like that. Is it sort of that same two-tier system that you speak of for humans also? Absolutely. Pet food industry, I mean, they're not selling products to dogs and cats. Dogs and cats don't go shopping. (laughs) I don't know. Products to the owners. And so they're using exactly the same kind of techniques to sell pet food to owners as they do to sell, to sell real food to owners. And many of them are the same companies. Mm-hmm. So they're, yeah, so they're sort of appealing to the two audiences in the, uh, in the same way with the same kind of advertising. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we're almost out of time. I just want to talk a little bit about the book you're working on now, which is Why Calories Count from Science to Politics. Can you just give us a little bit? Yeah, on- April 1st. Okay. And um, can you just give us a little sense of what it's about? Yeah, it's just everything anybody ever wanted to know about calories. Um, I wrote it with my partner, Mal Nesheim, who's an animal nutritionist from way back. And we thought that, you know, we were very impressed that people don't understand calories. They don't know where they are. They don't know whether to worry about them or not or how to worry about them. And that there was really nothing available that talked about calories in a way that somebody who was interested could find out about them. Mm -hmm. Um, So we wrote a book about it. It's coming out in April. It's pretty much done. We're on the last stages of proofreading. And it's, um, we think it's, um, we had a wonderful time doing it. So obviously we think it's really interesting and hope that other people will too. So, because I always think of calories as this kind of very abstract number, you know, and you sort of look at serving size versus calories on a package, and it, it's all very kind of removed and abstract. So does it give you sort of a, a more of a sense of what the true caloric content is of specific foods? And No, what we talk about is how to figure out where the calories are in food. Uh-huh. And we start with the idea that they're very abstract and try to make them as concrete as possible. A uh, hundred calories, for example, is enough, has, contains enough energy to, uh, or produces enough energy to boil a quart of water. Right. I mean, that's where the unit of measurement sort of Which, came you know, from. Something that you know, kind of people can understand, even though you can't see that being done. But it's this very abstract concept, and it makes it very, very difficult to talk about. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons why we think the calorie labeling could be useful if people would pay attention to it. And and the book talks about, uh, the book has quite a bit of science in it, which we hope people will read. We we worked very hard to try to make the science really accessible uh, so that people could understand where the calories are in food, where they are in the body, how many you need and how many you expend. And the difference, particularly the difference between calories that are measured in food and in the body and those that are estimated, because mostly we're doing estimates and the estimates are 
usually very, very far off. Mm. Well, I will, I mean, that, I'll be the first one to buy the book. <laughs> Those are some of the questions I've been asking for years. And so you're, you're finally explaining it. Now, we are really out of time, but we're going to go long because I'm allowed. I have one more question. Now, getting back to sort of, you know, like the standard American diet, right, SAD, which you, you talk about and other people talk about. You know, I've always sort of wondered because, you know, we're a nation of immigrants. You know, none of us have been here for very long. We're very young culture. I think I personally and I work in the food industry and I think a lot of people often feel that it's really hard to get a sense of, you know, what to eat, which I know you, you know, your book was called that. You, where you know you look at places like Europe or Asia where people have you know kind of lived in these same cultures for thousands and thousands of years and basically eaten the same diet give or take you know foods coming in and out because of of trade um so you know you grow up in France you grow up in China you grow up in India you eat what people in your region have eaten for the last you know 3 4000 years we're such a young new country. We all come from all sorts of different immigrant groups. It's really hard, I think, for people to get a sense of what to eat. And I think it's really confusing for people. We eat what's there and we eat what we're told to eat. And that's why the marketing of food is so absolutely influential in this country. But I'm just back from Italy and I saw McDonald's everywhere. Yeah. Oh, everywhere. I know. I am... Oh, it's changing, and one company after another after another is reporting that all the growth in its profits is coming from sales overseas. Yeah, actually, I just saw that on your some no. on, on your blog today. Particularly in developing countries. Yeah, well, I do uh, some work in Vietnam a couple of times a year, and I'm even starting to see it there. I mean, it's a little bit making slower inroads in Vietnam, but. Um, you know, I'm even starting to see it there, which I find really disturbing. Well, now we are really out of time. I want to thank you so much for joining us, taking time out from your very busy schedule. I really appreciate it. I'm really looking forward to your book about calories. I will definitely be buying that. Now, do you have any foodiness guilty pleasures you want to leave us with? Guilty pleasures? Oh, yeah. I'm a big ice cream lover. Um, frozen yogurt, that too. Mm, me too. Nice. So- but I don't feel guilty about it. Mm. Um, I just follow my own dietary advice, and I can. I'm one of those people who's lucky enough to be able to stop. Right, you have the internal built in. I've that, had enough. That's the secret. I think so. Yeah, and I think it's very hard for people to sort of tap into that if they're not used to it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, as you know, if you're a chef, anyway, Eric, it's lovely to talk to you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Have a great holiday, and um, too. Thanks again. Okay. Good night. Well, thanks so much for listening in to Let's Get Real. And uh, next week, we'll be doing a special show on sugar and sweetness. And we'll see you then. Bye.